Good morning and welcome to City Watch on WBAI, here to start your day with news and insight about New York and also about the world around us. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you again for tuning in to WBAI 99.5 FM this morning. And also, just to remind folks, in case you're out walking right now and like uh, to have us on your phone, we stream at WBAI.org. Each week, my co-host David Brand and I strive to bring you perspective from those who are shaping our city, our state, our nation, the elected officials, the policymakers, but also experts and influencers and even everyday people and everyday organizations that keep New York City moving ahead. So to be frank, 2020 has been filled with so much stress for many of us, myself included, and at times it makes me just shake my head wondering if this may go down as one of the worst years in history of our nation. There's been so much sadness and anguish and pain. We've lost ones to COVID and also to injustice. The numbers of those who have been infected by COVID and who have passed away due to it continue to escalate globally as well as across our country, even though in New York City and New York State, the numbers have remained relatively flat, relatively low for the last few weeks. But what gets me through this period, it's been the friendships. It's been the people that have been in my life and also people who I have just met, my neighbors, in the last six months. If we've stayed within our neighborhood and we've talked on the street, remaining socially distant, of course, and wearing our masks, we've been able to communicate with each other about our fears and our stress. And that has helped because we have not stayed, we've not kept this to ourselves. I have not. And that's also why I've enjoyed being here on WBAI for the last few years. And also during these last six plus months, uh, since we went into lockdown here in the, in the city and state, it's given me an opportunity to hear from people about what they are going through as well. And I'm also happy that uh, on my other show, Driving Forces on Thursdays on WBAI, I soon will be able to uh, take listener calls once again because I've missed hearing that perspective, particularly now as we are in the weeks leading up to the election. Uh, So I hope that you as well on this morning have been able to find ways to find peace. Uh, Because this, again, is a weekend which has been marked by sadness. Uh, I've been taking comfort in the achievements and legacy of a monumental person, small in size but large in stature, who we lost. And I'm talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, I believe, like you, that I I was just incredibly moved by her life and her legacy. I mean, she was born – we call her a daughter of Brooklyn. She was uh, born and schooled in Brooklyn, only the second woman to be appointed to the United States Supreme Court. She was an advocate, an activist, a passionate believer in gender equality and civil rights and the rights of workers and the separation of church and state. Uh, It was heartening yesterday to hear our governor say that his administration plans to move forward on erecting a statue in her honor in her home borough of Brooklyn. Uh, I, you know, was going through a lot of stories yesterday, as well as this morning in, in various publications and online. And there was one uh, one passage I do want to uh, cite to you from an MSNBC interview uh, when she had been asked uh, what people should remember most about her, and, and this is what she had said. 
someone who used whatever talent she had to do her work to do the very best of her ability and to help repair tears in her society to make things a little better through the use of whatever ability she has to do something as as my colleague and this member was on msnbc as my colleague david oh as she said excuse me as my colleague david Souter would say outside myself because i've gotten much more satisfaction for the things that i've done for which i was not paid there are so many quotes you're going to remember about her uh and it's just important to know that uh that you know she's someone that is going to live on through our memories. So uh, just so our engineer knows, my guest just indicated to me that he's been trying to get through but hasn't been able to. So we might try. Oh, so he is there. Okay, so he got through. Reading an earlier email. This is the way we all communicate, folks. While we're separated from each other, but we've got the fantastic Sean. Uh, making it all happen for us. So let me get to the first story of the day. A few days ago, the Holocaust suddenly was the top trending topic on Twitter, and it was for an alarming reason. An organization called the Conference on Jewish Material Claims Against Germany, what's known as the Claims Conference, unveiled its U.S. Millennial Holocaust Knowledge and Awareness Survey. This was the first ever 50-state survey on Holocaust knowledge among millennials and Gen Z. They'd surveyed folks between 18 and 39 years old. I remember growing up learning about Holocaust at an early age, both in my public school, but also when I attended Hebrew school after school as a youth. It was something I learned from my extended family members, uh, as well as my grandparents. And as I reflect on what I learned then, and we're speaking about decades ago, I'm certain I knew basic facts and enough about what was right, what was wrong, and what should never happen again. So when this survey came out, I looked at how each state stacked up against each other in our country and at New York's results. I was incredibly troubled. I also consider the period that we're in with the horrors of what took place in Charlottesville amid a white supremacist uprising still fresh in our minds, even though that took place three years ago. And I further reflected on how the stunning lack of awareness in our state and across our country not only is shaping opinions, but leading to acts of hate, discrimination, bias, and violence. So that brings me to my first guest today, the chair of the Claims Conference Task Force, Matthew Bronfman, also may be a familiar name to you. He's the chairman and CEO of the of BHB Holdings, a private investment firm. Among the many hats he wears in the private and philanthropic sectors, he's a member of the Executive Council of the American Jewish Committee and chairman of its board of trustees. He's served in a number of capacities with the 92nd Street Y, including as its president, and he currently chairs the Bronfman Center for Jewish Life at the Y, and additionally is a board member, excuse me, a board member at the Claims Conference. He joins me now to talk about this new report. Mr. Bronfman, welcome to WBAI. Thank you, Jeff. It's a pleasure to be here. It's a pleasure to be with you virtually today. So before I get to the survey itself, can you just talk a little about the overarching work of the Claims Conference and what the task force does? Uh, with pleasure, with pleasure. So the, the overarching aim of the Claims Conference, uh, which was founded in 1951, uh, has been to, um, to provide restitution in some way to Holocaust victims, Holocaust survivors, uh, and their families. Uh, the, the money is provided by the German government um, and, is, and is sent out to those in need. Uh, and there are, you know, obviously a dwindling number of survivors as time goes by. Um, and the survey, we've done now a number of surveys. This is the most comprehensive one uh, we've done, and first we've done uh, 50 state surveys, you, as you pointed out in the introduction, in America. Uh, and the surveys are done 
to get a, a real understanding, as we are now 75-plus years from the Holocaust, what is the level of, of knowledge, of understanding, of connection to those atrocities that took place during World War II? Um, and as you mentioned, uh, the, the results are, are very troubling at best. And, and what are some of the most disturbing findings? Um, well, as a, as a one of the few, I think, who were born in the, on the island of Manhattan and, and raised uh, in New York and still lives in New York, I find that the numbers of, of Holocaust awareness in New York to be incredibly troubling. Um, but I think that it's, it's, a, it's larger than just New York, obviously. Uh, it gets to our whole education system. Uh, the fact that a number of people, and we, you know, people are interested, we can get them to survey. I think it's something close to 15% of people think that Jews caused the Holocaust that alarming numbers of people have never heard of a concentration camp, can't name a ghetto. Um, it's, you know, the Holocaust is so instructive to us uh, how, how man can be so incredibly cruel to his fellow man. And this is a lesson that needs to be taught, it needs to be learned, it needs to be heard by everybody. And as you pointed out so beautifully in your introduction, you know, we see what's going on in Charlottesville, we see what went on in Poway, uh, we see what's going on just in the rise of anti-Semitic crimes in, in, in our beloved city in the last year, year and a half. Uh, and it's, it's just, it's so troubling. It's, it, it hurts so much that the intolerance and just the hate that is exhibited because somebody's a little bit different than, than you are. Uh, I think, it, 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 but the survey points it out. It, we, it's a real document that, that gives us the in-depth study uh, of the knowledge base. You know, this was, uh, and I pointed out, this was the first time such a survey has been done on a state-by-state -state basis, too, of Gen Z and millennials. What does their level of knowledge about the Holocaust signify to you? Well, you know, one of the things we didn't do is is try to understand their the knowledge base on other issues uh, that are global issues. Um, so I don't know if it's just the Holocaust or if it's many other things that are not being properly taught in the schools. Uh, but it certainly gets to the, the issue that with a, a, such a central event of the 20th century history, uh, it's truly a seminal event, frankly, um, this that the Holocaust is not being properly taught and the lessons from the Holocaust are therefore not being learned, I think is, is part of why we're seeing some of the increase in violence and hate that we're seeing. And, you know, a lot of people say to me, well, Matthew, what about Black Lives Matters? What, what about uh, the atrocities that have happened in many other parts of the world? Um, and I say, everything is important, right? You can't discount any of it, right? whether it's, it's what happened in Rwanda, uh, many genocides, the Armenian genocide, etc. But the Holocaust was so much bigger. And it really, I think, is so important for us to learn how man can be so inhumane and that really it's something we need to learn from so that we don't we don't repeat it you know we've, we've used the mantra never again so many times i frankly am terrified that it can happen again and in fact that was one of the findings as well not just uh, in new york but across the country when people uh, the gen z millennials were polled and asked if they think another uh, Holocaust could happen again, and across the board, the percentages were high. Uh, what does that say then about the state of our, our of our world and our 
and our country when you see such high percentages of people who think we could see another Holocaust? Well, it's, it's, it's obviously uh, a wake-up call. Um, I think that those of us who have been involved in Jewish life have been talking about this issue uh, for, for many number of years. You know, I sit on the Claims Conference Board in, because I am uh, a board member of the AJC. The AJC has been warning. Uh, we've, we've, been, we've been calling governments and meeting with governments for the last really close to 15 years to talk about the rise of anti-Semitism, the rise of, of the far right, the rise of uh, the, what's going to happen with the infiltration of jihadists that go to Syria, get trained, and come back. Uh, and, you know, governments need to understand that this is destructive to their societies. This, this is not just about the Jews. This is about a much larger societal issue of hate, of intolerance, um, of just... Uh, hating the other for no particular reason. And I think it's critical that the Holocaust get in the forefront of education in America today as an example of what can happen, because uh, it could happen again. And we, and we see the divisive politics that are going on today, uh, and it's just it's, it's bringing up all sorts of uh, emotional issues for me. And, and I didn't even lose anybody in the Holocaust. Uh, one of the other findings that seemed across the board very high across the country when you look at all the individual state uh, uh, statistics and the national is that there has been uh, an acknowledgement by Gen Z and millennials that they have witnessed in the last few years online and in their communities uh, acts of hate and violence and uh, neo-Nazism. You know, it. It's just so, and we read about these as well. What do you see as some of the, the, the solutions? What, you know, I know this is not what the report is about, but given your broader work, what are some of the actions you think should take place? How should people look at these uh, results and say, we need to act, here are some things we should do? Uh, well, thanks for that question, Jeff. I think that um, there are, two, there are two places that this has to start, but really, really it's in schools, because I don't think that parents have the time or the energy to talk particularly about the Holocaust in, in their homes. And, I've, and my guess is most people uh, are not educated enough to talk about it. But I think we need to create a national curriculum or at least a state-by-state -state curriculum. But I would say the most important thing we can do, uh, in addition to that, I think that's critical, but the next most important thing is do is I think that every school, every public school uh, should be required for their either 10th, 11th, or 12th graders to take a trip to Washington uh, and to go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum. Um, you know, even in Israel, students in their in high school, 10th, 11th, or 12th grades, ninth graders don't do it; they're too young. Uh, go to Poland and go to visit the concentration camps. Now that's and that's in a country where the vast majority of the high schoolers are grandchildren or great-grandchildren today of Holocaust survivors or Holocaust victims. So we're far removed from that, and no one's going to go to Poland. But I think, and whether you can go to the African-American Museum at the same time, which is relatively new and it's phenomenal, yes, of course, I've been there. Uh, it's incredibly important as well. But I think every high schooler in the United States should be required to go to the Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington. Uh, because to see it and feel it, is it will create a different emotional response than just learning about it in a textbook. 
and and I'm glad you talked about visiting museums because that was uh, one of the uh, concerns that I had noted in reading these reports. Because here in New York, for instance, we also have, and full disclosure, I work as well with the Museum of, uh, of Jewish History, um, and it's just disconcerting when you see the number the high percentages of of youth and i'll say youth i'll say gen z and millennials who have not visited institutions but as well it was heartening in a number of states to see that they uh a big percentage said that they knew a holocaust survivor uh because that is not going to be as easy to say in the next decade or so uh, your thoughts on that, and I'm very glad that you brought this up about visiting institutions and not just the Holo- a Holocaust Museum, because that creates a broader awareness about our world and not just any any portion of it. Um, your uh, just a little about uh, yourself, because I didn't get a chance to uh, to ask this at the beginning, but you noted that you know you had not had any, uh, I believe, Holocaust survivors in your family. Why has this been so important to you? You know, I'm I'm very very fortunate that I come from a line of, of my parents, my grandparents on uh, on both sides really, who were involved in in Jewish life, particularly my father's side, my father, my uncle, my grandfather, um, and the Holocaust obviously is uh, the most important uh, negative event. Obviously, the creation state of Israel probably being the most important positive event that's happened in the last in the last century. Um, and I think the reason it's so important to me is because it is it's a threat. The the lack of awareness, the lack of knowledge, and the possible consequences are a threat, not only to Judaism and to Jews, but it's a, it's a societal threat around the world. You know, and, and I grew up with the belief in a, in a liberal. I don't, I don't mean liberal versus conservative. I mean liberal democratic society uh, where ideas can be exchanged in a, in a thoughtful way, uh, and. You know, I think liberal democratic societies are, are at risk today throughout Europe, you know, the whole Western world. Uh, the rise, as we mentioned before, the rise of the far right, neo-Nazis, etc. Um, democracy we, we, is the core of, of Western civilization for us, and, and I'm worried about it. And I think that we need to come back to the center in many, many ways. Uh, and the Holocaust and understanding man's inhumanity to man uh, is, is critical to being able to foster uh, dialogue, a dialogue again and rule of law, et cetera, are the, are the underpinnings of, of democracy. And as I wrap up, if people want to learn more about this report uh, or any of the reports really and look uh, up their states, where should they go? Uh, they can go to the Claims Conference uh, website, which is, I think, claimsconference.org. Um, but I should, I should actually know the answer to that better. You are you are correct. I have that down. I have okay. I have that down. Okay. You are you are correct. And you know there is a slider at the top, and you'll see one of the uh, the pages that comes up. You just click on that. You can go to all the reports. It is. I think I I want to encourage our listeners, particularly not just for New York, but to go to the national survey as well. It's incredibly important. Matthew Bronfman, I want to thank you so much for joining me here on WBAI today. Thank you very much, Jeff. Appreciate it. 
So that was my conversation with Matthew Brodman of the Claims Conference Task Force. You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM radio. We are also streaming, as always, at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I thank you for tuning in today. I'm going to get to my next guest in just a moment, but I do want to spend a moment to just thank you again for, for always making WBAI a part of your day. I've been with the station now for it's got to be over two years. Uh, and, you know, and I I, I want to thank you for those who have also become BAI buddies in the name of this show, City Watch, or my other show, Driving Forces on Thursdays, uh, where we take on more national politics. And soon we'll take the listener calls again. Uh, but for those of you who are not a BAI buddy or want to up your contribution – now is a great time to do that as we plan for the fall because we want to continue bringing you this type of programming. So there are multiple ways you can do this. And one is to go to our website, and that's give to, that's give to, the number two, WBAI.org. And you can also call our call center at 516-620-3602. Again, 516-620-3602. So as... As our regular listeners know, I'm an avid reader, both of fiction and nonfiction. At the heart of what I find most enjoyable are stories that move me, whether the pages bring me joy, make me laugh, inspire me, or sadden me. The books that stay with me after I've read them are often the ones I'll gladly pick up once again. I can't count how many times I've read To Kill a Mockingbird. I'm sure many of you as well. That's one of the books you've read again and again. Uh, one of the books that I just read last week was by a familiar name to me and I suspect to you. And I realized early on uh, in the you know within the first few pages, this wasn't just a book about a woman's lifelong fascination with horses. It was also about relationships and life and how the past can shape the present. I'm talking about a book called Horse Crazy, and the author is Sarah Maslin Neer. Sarah is a staff reporter for the New York Times, and one of her most memorable investigations earned her the distinction of being a finalist for the 2016 Pulitzer Prize for Unvarnished, if you recall. This was the result of a year-long investigation into New York City's nail salon industry, and it documented the exploitative labor practices and health issues manicurists face. Previously, she freelanced for 11 sections, yes, 11 sections of the paper, traveling to the Alaskan wilderness in search of people who preferred to live in isolation or to post-earthquake Haiti. And before that, as she details in the book, she was a Times nightlife columnist covering 252 parties in 18 months. A born and raised Manhattanite, she recently published Horse Crazy by Simon & Schuster, and it would be just an understatement to say she likes horses, or even that she just loves horses, as you'll discover in this wonderful, entertaining, and at times heart-rendering book. Sarah, welcome to City Watch. Wow, what an intro. Thank you so much. <laughs> now, my first question for you, I might have answered it, but I'm sure there are details that I did not. Before I get to the book, for any listeners who don't know much about you, who is Sarah Maslin Neer? Oh, gosh, that is a profound question to start our Sunday morning with. Who is she? Uh, well, until recently, she was a secret horse crazy I kept my lifelong passion and obsession, really, with these animals a secret because, Jeff, I cover such hard corners of the world, really dire stuff, and I felt that I wouldn't be taken seriously if I revealed that when I'm not deeply engaged with journalism, I'm deeply engaged with ponies. 
And I was speaking to a friend uh, a couple years ago, and he really said something that stuck with me. He said, Sarah, passion resonates. It doesn't matter what it's about. Passion is something you'll get. And Jeff, uh, pardon me if I'm wrong here. I don't think you're a horse person, right? I'm not a horse person. person. But But the book sounds like it resonated with you. And I think he was right. And so in that moment, my friend really freed me from these strictures I put on myself. And I came out as a horse person and uh, pitched the book Horse Crazy. And when, uh, so this started a few years ago, but how did your approach to the book evolve? Because it's not just about horses. Yeah, the book ends up being really a memoir that my story framed and threaded through the horses in my life. Each chapter is named after a different horse in my life. And it also became the story of horse crazies around the world, because wherever I've gone as a New York Times reporter, from the wildfires of California to uh, the terrorist zones in West Africa, when I'm done, I put away my notebook and I whip out another and go find the horses. Um, And so I found the people behind those horses. Um, But when I pitched the book, I said to my publisher, Simon Schuster, you know, this is the story of horses and, and their, their people around the world. And they pushed back and they said, no, it's your story. And, and that, as a reporter, the word I, we, is just beaten out of us. We never use it in the New York Times. It's forbidden. And so that was really the most challenging part of this endeavor is digging into my personal story. And I often say that horses are personal. You know, you look at a dog or a cat and you think, oh, how cute. You look at a horse and you feel something. It's sort of like looking at a mountain range or or the roiling sea. It, it has an emotional pull, and that's because horses are personal. So given my previous guest uh, this morning, Matthew Bronfman, uh, we talked about a new survey about a lack of knowledge about the Holocaust among Gen Zs and millennials. Can you share a little with our listeners about your father, uh, who he was, and also what he published? Sure. I'm sure for listeners right now, they're like, that's a left turn. But actually, (laughs) it's important. It is important. (laughs) Yeah, my book takes uh, quite a few turns. And and I talk about that. I say, you know, writing about, you know, ponies and Nazis and intermingled sentences feels uncomfortable. But those are the threads of my life, weirdly, that, that braided together make me who I am. My father was a Holocaust survivor uh, who, at the age of nine, he liked to say, um, it defeated 80 million Germans trying to murder him by having a false identity as a Catholic. And he sort of hid in plain sight. And throughout the book, I try to unpack why I'm so compelled by horses. And I realize a large part of that was passing, was entering as the daughter of an immigrant, the daughter of an outsider, uh, into this very insider, waspy world. Um, And I tried to to study that. And I'll I'll give you a story from the book, Jeff, that when I was about 15, I won, uh, excuse me, I got second place at a very, very prestigious competition called the Hampton Classic that happens in Long Island. And I was sure I hadn't won. I hadn't gotten anything because uh, I'm an outsider. Um, But my dad waited all day by the side of the ring. And at the end of the day, they called out the winners and the horses paraded into the winner's circle, followed by one tiny little old Jewish man at his bald <laughs> head. Uh, and he, I got second place. And my dad collected the ribbon for me and he put it on his chest and he turned to the judge and he said, I defeated Hitler. And that is that unpacking of horses, of any passion, what it means to you. It, it's so much deeper than just a, a, a compulsion or an interest. 
it was braided up with all of these uh, layers of identity for my family. And I only realized that in really turning my investigative lens on myself. And, and that was, as you recounted that, I kind of got a chill. That was one of my mm. uh, most memorable moments of the book. Throughout this book, uh, you walk us through your connections with a number of horses over the years. You write, and I'm pulling a quote, horse crazy is structured around the lifelong dialogues I've had with these animals, each chapter named after a horse who told me its story or helped me write my own. So take us back to when you fell in love with horses, because this was more than a passing fancy. So I'm a born and raised Manhattanite, and it's super unusual that I'm a horse girl. Also, I like to say that my family only likes animals if they come with a Bernays sock. So it's uh, really not um, part of my lineage or my my uh, every day. Um, but I think it started, my parents uh, said I was really energetic and I wouldn't uh, sit still. So they thought, the genius idea, let's put her on a moving horse. She'll be sitting still and, and moving, so we'll know where she is all the time. Um, and pretty rapidly, I was about two years old, and I plopped off the side of that horse the first day. And it kept cantering. I actually had kicked it into a canter, and I just lay there in its path on the ground. And I turned over in the dirt, and there was a horse barreling down on me, everybody watching a gas. And the horse jumped over me. And that's the scene I begin the book with. I say, I don't remember the first time I was on a horse. I remember the first time I was off it. And rightly or wrongly, that moment in my little life imprinted the idea that horses would save me. And my adult life has proved that true. I was the victim of a knife attack. Actually, a robber climbed through my window in the West Village on Thanksgiving Day 2010 um, and stabbed me while I was in bed. And after that, Jeff, the city became incredibly loud to me. I had post-traumatic stress, a thing called hypervigilance. I heard everything because when you're a prey creature, when you're hunted, I heard every sound. And that's how horses operate in the world. They are prey creatures. We're predators. And they live that way, but they communicate with one another through silence. And those horses helped quiet down the city. They helped make my life whole again. And like that little girl in the dirt when I was two, they saved me as an adult. And, and it, it, you know, moving around as far as the order of questions I wanted to ask you, because in talking about horses, there are so many, uh, and that's what was so enjoyable about this too. So many things about horses and the way that you know, uh, you know that people might not realize. Um, not just how much manure the average horse produces each day, <laughs> which you go into, but you know, some other things that you kind of teach us, but, and it's not, this is not, you know, an academic book, you know, it, you know, it really is done in an enjoyable way. Can you just talk about some of the other things that you, you want to show, show the reader about why horses act certain ways? Sure. Well, what I did is every element of my life, I, I pulled the thread. So I've always been around horses and seen how they converse with each other. But I decided to put it through my uh, investigative lens. And I wanted to understand the science behind it. We say, look a gift horse in the mouth. What does that mean? That's actually uh, from, um, the, uh, uh, from the Bible. That's how old that, uh, that sentence is, that phrase. And it's because horses wear their teeth down uh, at different rates throughout their life. And so like the rings on an oak tree, a horse's and its dentition can tell you its age. Another thing is um, they communicate, like I said, in silence, 
but with a very definite delineated system of gestures. They actually have a sign language of ears. Their ears rotate different directions, and that tells their mood. When they're uh, tipped back, they're a little peeved. When they're flat back, they might follow that up with a bite in case you didn't get the message. Um, And pricked forward is their smile. And so I dug into the different stories uh, and really the meaning behind horses. I actually also, I have a Dutch warm blood. It's a type of horse. And I thought to myself, how the heck do I have a Dutch horse in New York? And turns out he was imported on a 747. He flew into JFK, just like many Dutchmen do. And so I went in the belly of a cargo plane uh, and imported nine Dutch warmbloods myself for the book to see how horses fly. And so, like you said, it's not an academic book, but you will come away knowing far more than maybe you ever wanted to about horses. And, and that was another moment that stood out for me as the uh, as the plane was landing and the horses or descending and the horses were kind of nestling against you uh, for, for comfort. It was such a profound moment. I, I describe when the landing gear comes out in the plane, you know, and the horse's equilibrium shifts, and that silence of their dialogue really becomes a problem because you can't say to them, oh, guys, guys, we're just going, you know, on a descent into JFK. You know, they, they don't get it. They just know, oh, my belly's fluttering. And so suddenly as one, I was in a shipping container with these uh, three horses because you don't actually stay seatbelted when you're a horsey flight attendant. <laughs> you, you hold them in their places. And suddenly these three horses pressed into my chest the way they would under the, the hip of a, of a mother mare. And they sort of came to me for solace. And as we descended through the air, they leaned into me, and, and I became their herd. And that's really the profound grace of horses and something we, we take from them but don't ever really give back. We delight in their life. We partner with them. And I often struggle with, and I discuss in the book, do we give back to them what they give us, which is this feeling of being part of something much larger than ourselves. So uh, our listeners might have, at one point in their life, if they were walking through Central Park, they might have encountered you on (laughs) patrol. Could you talk a little about your work in Central Park? Because I found that fascinating, too. Well, if they were listeners with their dogs off a leash, not only did they encounter me astride a giant horse as New York City Parks Enforcement, they encountered my booklet of tickets because that was our job. I was a teenage mounted Parks Enforcement officer on these giant Belgian draft horses. Those are like the Budweiser horses, cousins to them. And we really cut a formidable figure marching through the park. Uh, The secret was, though, we had these batons on us, nightsticks, And I did this when I was a teenager as um, I went to a private school and you were allowed to have a job for a second semester senior instead of uh, coming to class. And so that was my job. But my job really as a mounted rider was to chase truants just like myself on my days off uh, through the park. But the secret was our horses were barely trained. They really only know how to go stop uh, and forward. And our nightsticks were glued to the saddle so we could never use them. So cut a formidable figure in the park and scare the daylights out of teenagers, for sure. Do anything other than that was beyond our capacity. (laughs) And adjacent to the park, up near where I used to live on the Upper West Side, the Museum of Natural History, you you talk about uh, what you discovered uh, is housed at the Museum of Natural History. Can you explain that a bit for our listeners? 
Sure. I wanted to understand where the horse came from. And what's really fascinating about the horse in America is that 10,000 years ago, they went extinct. And they're actually a relatively recent import brought by Spanish conquistadors in the 1400s. And we think of them as so tied up with Americana and identity, but they're as foreign, uh, like to the British as tea is, right? Tea is from India, but we think of that as tied up with uh, British identity. And I always found that interesting and liberating, that uh, horses belong to who we say they belong to, and identity can be crafted. So I wanted to figure out where these horses came from. So on the fourth floor of the Natural History Museum, there are, believe it or not, 10,000 horse specimens. Because when those specimens were collected and, and specimens of the horses passed, uh, horses were the way you got around. They were the most important animal in the world back in the 1800s, 1900s when that collection was amassed. And there are cabinets and cabinets of 50 million year old equine antecedents. I've actually got to hold the tiny cat sized head of one in my palm to understand where these animals came from. I'll tell you a really fascinating tidbit. One of the reasons why that cat sized creature uh, became the rideable giant is grass. So grass didn't exist when horses were first uh, born on this planet uh, or their horse ancestors. And so as blades of grass, uh, came into existence, horses need to get bigger and bigger to process those tiny blades and get nutrition out of them. So we owe that massive size of these horses to tiny blades of grass. Wow. So, Sarah, I've got just about a minute left, and I want to close with a quote that you cite from a woman who owned a number of horses and who had gone through a divorce. She said, I have horses. How do you compete with horses? So I ask you, how do we compete with them? <laughs> Well, I would say nothing competes with horses, and I totally agree with her. Um, I think next up for me may be deeper and further explorations into the horse world. One of the things I talk about is how black people were removed from the equestrian story. One in four cowboys in the pioneer era were black, uh, but they've been totally erased from the narratives of the cowboydom. Uh, we just ran the Kentucky Derby. The first ever winner of the Kentucky Derby was a black man, and the trainer of that horse was a freed slave. And so the stories of people erased from the narrative, underrepresented in history, and the equestrian narrative, which is the American narrative in a way, are really a passion of mine, and I'm going to continue to tell those stories. And I'm so glad you said that, because as I thought about it, as I read the book, I felt like each chapter could be another book. <laughs> from your mouth to God's ears, Jeff, let's do it. Sarah Maslinier, where can people go to learn more about you and also to find out more about Horse Crazy? Well, you can always find me in the New York Times. I've been covering uh, the racial and civil unrest that we are all experiencing and uh, getting hit with pepper bullets while doing it. Um, but if you'd like to buy Horse Crazy, it's available at all retailers. But I highly suggest that you buy it at your local bookshop. And a great way to find that is through IndieBound, which locates your local bookshop nearest to you. Support local business. Sarah Maslinier, thanks for joining me this morning on WBAI. Terrific. Thanks for having me. 
You've been listening to City Watch on WBAI 99.5 FM, also streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm your host, Jeff Simmons, and I was just talking with Sarah Maslin, your author of Horse Crazy, published by Simon and Schuster. So finally today, I invited on a man I have known for quite some time. He's the former head of the New York City Department of Small Business Services. His name is Rob Walsh. My interest in speaking with him really is twofold. I've been talking a lot on this show and on my other show, Driving Forces, about how small businesses in the city have been suffering, and I wanted his perspective on that. But then I read a piece recently by Rob published in Gotham Gazette, which our avid listeners know is led by WBAI host Ben Max about how the future of the New York Urban Fellows Program was threatened by budgetary cuts amid the city's fiscal woes. So it's a program that's close to his heart. Uh, before I bring him on, I just want to give a little more on his background. Rob Walsh serves currently as the senior advisor to the president of Manhattan College. He's an adjunct professor at Columbia University School of Public and International Affairs and at Baruch's School of Public and International Affairs. And he also has a regular radio show segment called The Bottom Line for small business on 1010 wins and moderates a small business challenge with challenge recognizes the work of entrepreneurs in the metropolitan area and for 12 years he had also served as the commissioner of the department of small business services serving the needs of its 200,000 small businesses under former mayor mike bloomberg he joins me now to talk about not just the new york city urban fellows program but what is needed now to support many of the businesses that are threatened with extinction amid the pandemic rob walsh welcome to city watch Thank you. Thanks, Jeff. Thanks for having me, and thanks for all your help in the past. You, know, you and I have been able to work together, putting a spotlight on a lot of small businesses and organizations that do great work around the city, and I, I enjoy this program. So thank you very much. And I, I gave your bio, but was there anything else that you want to let our listeners know that you've been up to since leaving SBS? No, I, I, I think you have it. I, I you know, it's, <laughs> okay. uh, I, I'm teaching a little bit. Uh, you know, on the radio and uh, up at uh, Manhattan College, uh, helping out there with the president. So uh, I invited you on after reading the piece you had in Gotham Gazette about the New York City Urban Fellows Program, which was threatened with, with losing its funding. Can you talk a little about the history of the program, what its original mission was, and then how also it's kind of evolved over time? Yeah, and, and, I, and I, you know, when you and I talked about this, um, you know, I thought it was out of the woods, and it's not out of the woods. So we should talk a little bit about what the future is. I mean, this is a program that dates back to John Lindsay, you know, when he was looking to recruit the best and brightest to public service during a tough time in the, in the late 60s. Um, you know, so Lindsay, Beam, Koch, Dinkins, Giuliani, Bloomberg, and then de Blasio. Seven administrations, over a 1,000 people. It's a fellowship that brings in... Uh, 20, 25 uh, uh, fellows, uh, recent college graduates, to public service for a year, um, scattered about city agencies, rolling up their sleeves, getting a taste of public service, and doing good. Uh, it's a program, full disclosure, that I was uh, selected to participate in in 1981. And then later on, I ended up directing the program during some of the toughest times during the fiscal crisis. You know, the, the point of all of this is it's a signature program. It's a leadership program to bring people in. And we heard um, that City Hall was cutting this program this year, which would be devastating. 
And what has happened since? Well, I'll tell you what has happened since. Uh, OMB uh, has said that they are going to go ahead to hire a class, but it's an empty gesture because what they told city agencies is that the city agencies would have to fund, fund the urban fellowship. Now, think about it. You're a city commissioner. You have to make a decision between furloughing um, permanent employees and or picking up a recent college graduate. If you're a city commissioner, you know what you're going to be doing. You take care of your own before you add, add on. So this is a program that is, it, it, it's going to, if it does survive, it's going to be a shell of what um, it had. Now, I, I should point out at this point, if you don't already, it's, is this is a program that should be near and dear to the mayor's heart. This is a program that gave him a start in 1984 as a New York City Urban Fellow. It's a, it's a program that brings in a diverse class of, of not just by race, but also school. It's not just the Ivy League schools. It's also the Fordham's. It's Baruch. It's, it's Brooklyn College and Hunter College. And this is, this is something that opens the eyes to so many, and it, it, it's really, in, in my mind, a wrong-headed decision. Yeah, and I'm glad you, you've you've talked about this because as I look at government today, you know, and you were right, the mayor's been uh, floating the number of possibly uh, uh, laying off what 22,000 em, uh, employees that hasn't been resolved yet, but that's still something that's on the table. But as you look at this program. And you look at the face of government now, what, how substantial an impact has the New York City Urban Fellows Program had on the face of government today? Well, you know, I, I could tell you as a, a former commissioner, someone who spent 12 years, um, you know, the, the, the talent, the energy, the creativity that I got by adding Urban Fellows to um, my agency and infusing the agency with that type of talent was uh, immeasurable. Uh, the leadership that has come out of the Urban Fellows Program over the 50 years, you think about you know, the president of Bard College, Leon Botstein, Bill Mulroy, the uh, secretary to the governor, Hildy Simmons, who did so much in uh, nonprofits, Linda Gibbs, a deputy mayor, Gene Rusnoff, who was uh, you know, just amazing in terms of the work that he did um, uh, you know, across the board in, in transit issues. You know, there's so much leadership, so much talent that has come out of the program. A thousand people in the last 50 years. It is the signature. It's a, it's a way of people, you know, getting a, 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 a fast track into government and staying. And I, I think particularly at this time of making public service a attractive and attractive career track is so important. Now, you think about the numbers and the money. You know, it's, it, the budget, it's about a million dollars. So, if and, and that was what I was going to ask. And, yeah, and, and that if, was if, what I was going to ask, it's small. Yeah, if, 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 if the mayor is not going to do this, is roll up your sleeves, get out to a foundation, get out to some financial service uh, organizations, and have them underwrite this. This is exactly the way Ed Koch did it in saving the program back in the 80s. If you can't fit it into the city budget, you know, go out and, and, and make it happen. But don't cut the program and don't have an empty gesture saying, okay, agencies, you could do this. 
we know they're, they're not going to be able to do. And it would be a really shame to lose a program like this. So I want to go over to another topic that I've been talking about on a number of shows here on WBAI about how uh, many of our businesses that we've come to know and love in the city are facing extinction, if not already have made the decision that they're going to be they're going to have to close down amid the mm-hmm. pandemic. Uh, and, I, and I read a piece in The Times that it's not just the small businesses, but think of the landlords as well and what they're suffering. Do they decide to forgive or, or lower rent? How has the de Blasio administration been responsive to this need or not been responsive? Well, I'll, I'll talk on the positive. I, I think this open street program that they did with the uh, New York City Hospitality Alliance is, is a home run. Um, I, I think it's fantastic in terms of bringing the energy and, and activity back to the streets. And, I, and my hope is a form of that you know, continues. I, uh, it, was, it was much needed. I, I obviously worry about as the weather gets colder. You know what happens to many of these restaurants, you know, out there. But but it, it was a lifesaver. On the on the on other fronts, I get concerned about um, getting money into the hands of small businesses, whether it's through grants or loans. Uh, we saw the federal government fumble, you know, on on their loan program, and quite frankly, we also saw the city fumble when they uh, established their own grant program. A case in point of that is a program that they had where they were giving $10 million in grants, only 80,000, 80,000 of that went to small businesses in the Bronx. Uh, and that, that's just insane. Um, a positive, you have organizations like the Bronx Chamber, Brooklyn Chamber, Queens Chamber of Commerce really rolling up their sleeves and, and navigating through all this and trying to connect small businesses uh, to capital, trying to uh, work with them on product diversification. I was talking to Randy Pierce, the head of the Brooklyn Chamber, uh, this past week, and he was telling me that there was a hardware store in Marine Park that was also uh, selling uh, Michael's tomato sauce on their shelves. You know, so people are getting creative. They're, they're trying to work. I think the city could be doing a lot more, being a lot more active in neighborhoods, in organizing not only the business improvement districts and the chambers, but the merchants associations really getting granular and organizing them and getting a better understanding of what their needs are. And I'm glad you mentioned that about creativity because I was uh, <clears throat> thinking, you know, what do we expect the future is going to be for small business in New York City? I, I, I worry. I mean, I, I live in Carroll Gardens and I walk up and down the streets of Court Street and Smith Street and I see these empty stores and I, I worry. Um, the, the, the good news is my wife and I were walking up Smith Street and we you start seeing signs that say shop locally. And I think we need to engage our communities and neighborhoods to uh, invest and engage and get, and get out there and support some of these small businesses. And... Um, you know, and make that and make that happen. But I, I, I think it comes down to capital and, and getting capital, you know, into the hands of small businesses. Uh, you know, the fact that the you know, federal government continues to fumble, you know, on, on the assistance on, on this uh, concerns me. But I also think that we have to be organizing more groups, you know, like the Queen's Chamber of Commerce, like the Bronx Chamber of Commerce and other groups to end up helping out and figuring out how small businesses can navigate through. I mean, it's 
uh, I, it's going to be a tough, tough road for many of these small businesses. And uh, as I get ready to wrap up, we've got just a minute left. I want to just go back to the uh, New York City Urban Fellows Program. If our listeners are interested in learning more about the program, if they want to get involved, uh, given some of your ideas that if this does become a victim of the uh, of the budget, uh, that there may be other opportunities to support the program, where should they go? What should they do? Well, the the excuse me the the uh, the leadership of the the Urban Fellows Program. There's an alumni association, and they're posting regularly on LinkedIn and and, and social media. And I would I would be you know on the watch for that. I, I think a lot of this, quite frankly, Jeff, at, at, at this moment is inside baseball with uh, the the uh, fellows uh, and and alumni you know really lobbying hard with with the with the city. So I I, I, I would I would hope that you pay you know keep doing what you're doing um, and um, you know and, and getting the word out. And finally, Rob, if people want to learn more about you and your work, where should they go? Well, I um, I continue. Am I allowed to say 1010 10 yeah, wins? I, yes. I, uh, <laughs> yeah, you can. The engineer might cut me off, but go for it. <laughs> I, I do a segment on Mondays and Fridays, and I'm always looking for great stories about small businesses and New York and, and putting a positive light. So it's called The Bottom Line for Small Business, and it airs on Mondays and Fridays. Rob Walsh, thanks so much for joining me here on WBAI today. All right. Jeff, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Thank you. So I want to thank uh, everyone for tuning in to WBAI this morning and also my guests, uh, Matthew Bronfman of the Claims Conference, Sarah Masley, near author of Horse Crazy. By the way, I texted her quickly because I forgot to ask, uh, knowing her career, if she ever met uh, – uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, and she said uh, briefly for about one second, uh, so <laughs> I, you know that they uh, uh, that she had gone to Brearley, and uh, so I, you know, I wanted to ask her a little about that as well. Did not get a chance, but also I want to thank Rob Walsh, senior advisor to the president of Manhattan College and former New York City Small Business Services Commissioner. Uh, as always. I want to thank the amazing and oh-so-common, wonderful Sean Rhodes, engineer extraordinaire, who makes the show happen each week. My co-host, David Brand, is going to be with you next Sunday morning. I'll be back in two weeks with a special focus on the Rockaways. Uh, if you wish to follow me on social media where I announce our guests each week, my Twitter handle is at Jack Heights, J-A-C-K-H-I-T-E-S. And that's because I live here on Jackson Heights. And you should also just go to the WBAI website. When you're going there to uh, also check out to become a WBAI, a BAI buddy, you'll also see the slider atop that shows you what is in store what's on tap uh for the programs that are coming up i started this show by quoting ruth bader ginsburg so i want to end with one of her most memorable comments one in this environment that we should consider every day uh, she said fight for the things that you care about but do it in a way that will lead others to join you as I read the papers this morning in an unrelated story, there was a passage that resonated with me uh, where the uh, journalist wrote, there is no perfect moment to create change. There will never be. So I ask again, if not now, when? Consider Ruth Bader Ginsburg's legacy and let that motivate you to speak up, to stand up, to rise up when you witness inequality, when you recognize bias, when you note discrimination, 
and when you seek to challenge injustice and seek a better and fairer world for all. So thank you for tuning in today and have a wonderful day. Thank you.